I want to encourage you to turn to your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 as we continue in our study through this letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, depending on whatever season of life that you might be currently in or will one day be in, there are certain realities that you will likely expect to experience. For example, if you are a family with a brand new baby, you can likely expect to not sleep for a while, right? If you're a parent of young boys, like myself and my wife, you can expect to visit the ER multiple times in a year. We have preferred parking. If you're a parent of a teenage girl, I have no idea. I recommend Smith & Wesson. Just saying. Or talking to Joe Fors, he says he recommends a horse. A horse is a great distraction for young girls. Boys come second. If you're getting older, you can expect your normal bodily functions to digress. I know, that's a touchy subject. The fact is, every season of life, every, every situation that we, uh, we enter into often has certain realities associated with it, right? They just kind of, it goes with the territory. The question I want to pose for us this morning is, what realities might we consider certain for the Christian life? What, what expectations are inevitable for us as Christians? Well, according to Peter, we could probably have a, an exhaustive list if we were to kind of put all our minds and collaborate together, but according to Peter, according to our study through First Peter, one such inevitable expectation for a Christian is suffering. Trials, tribulations of various kinds. Now, following Jesus, we must understand as a Christian, following Jesus faithfully will result in some form or degree of suffering. This certainty 
can be difficult for us to accept oftentimes because we long to live in a context or a, a situation in life where it could be defined as fair, right? We all want to live in a context of fairness. In fact, whether we realize it or acknowledge it or not, we oftentimes adult a karma-like philosophy in life that basically says, if I live a good life, then good will come to me. If I treat others with respect, then I will also be treated with respect. If I live righteously, then I will be blessed. And while that may be generally true, all you have to do is read the book of Ecclesiastes and find out very quickly that's not always true. In fact, it's more untrue than not. Yes, in general, we can expect good things to come back to us. When we treat others with respect, in general, we'll be treated with respect. But the Bible promises something that is inevitable, and that is this, that regardless of how how good we live, how righteous we are, we will suffer. For example, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Solomon the sage says this, good people are often treated as though wicked, and the wicked are often treated as though good. That doesn't seem very fair. Jesus says in John 15, verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, me being Jesus, who was perfect, they will also persecute you. John 16, Jesus also says, in this world you will, not you might, but you will have tribulation. Paul also resonates with this same same understanding in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, when he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you will not only believe in him, but you will also suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So the idea that we that we long so the idea that as long as you're in the center of God's will that you won't suffer that's just basically if we could put a kind of a blunt statement to it that's just basically unbiblical. To be in God's will does not mean everything will go smoothly for you at least on your terms. Following Jesus comes with trials and tribulations of various kinds. I kind of wonder if we were to give a, if we were to work on our evangelistic message, that might be an appropriate detail to, to add to our message, right? Hey, come to Jesus. All your wildest dreams will come true. No, come to Jesus and you'll suffer. Hello? It's a necessary part of our message, actually. Because coming to Jesus to, to, to offer empty promises you do no one a service. And the Bible is very clear that you will suffer. So the question for us this morning, the question I believe that Peter answers for us this morning is, what biblical perspective and attitude ought we to have as Christians toward suffering? And how should Christians respond to the inevitable suffering that we may endure? The first answer to that question is this, and we've already kind of talked about it, but we must accept that suffering is inevitable. We need to accept the inevitability of suffering. Look at what Peter says in verse 12 once again. He says, beloved, there's a term of endearment right there, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, when you suffer, don't conclude that what is happening to you is somehow out of the ordinary. Remember what we learned last week, right? Last week, Peter calls us to think clearly and to think maturely and to think spiritually about every situation that we encounter. And the mature, spiritually-minded perspective of suffering is that it's going to happen in some way, shape, or form. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, next to the Bible is the most widely sold and published resource uh, ever in the history of the world. He says this, the Christian life is hard, and following Jesus means having the wind in your face. Everybody, ever try running on the waterfront trail? Going, going east is easy. Turning around, all of a sudden, you're like, this is a lot harder. You know what I'm talking about, Rob, right? <laughs> you go out, you're like, yeah, tailwind. And you turn around, and you have to kind of lean in a little bit more. And it requires more effort. You have to exert more energy to kind of go back to the place in which you started. The Christian life is hard. And following Jesus is having the wind in your face. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all going to suffer in the same way, and it does also doesn't mean that we're going to suffer to the same degree. You look at the suffering of Job, for example. He suffered at the hands of Satan. Of course, he didn't know at the time what was going on, but there was a whole conversation at play between God, the Father, and the enemy, Satan. We also have Paul the Apostle, for example. He suffered in another way, though physically, yes, but he also suffered the loss of friendships in his ministry. Many, he said, abandoned me when they needed them most. The point is the disciples of Jesus, all disciples of Jesus, will suffer. This is why Peter further explains in verse 19 that suffering is oftentimes the will of God. Now, let me just say time out a second there for a moment. Suffering is the will of God. God wants you to suffer? Yeah. Does that make God a mean God? Does that make God someone who cannot be trusted? Does that mean, does that, mean that God is not actually good? No. No, God, in His will, in His perfect and good an eternal will, wills that we would suffer, not so that he would make our lives miserable, not because he doesn't love you, not because he's out to, to destroy your life or because he's angry at you. No, he allows us and causes us to suffer because he is seeking to give you your life. You see, biblical understanding, biblical, the way we understand the world and how everything works is oftentimes counterintuitive to the world in which we live. You see, the world would say, you know, no, suffering is bad, and we always pursue a life of ease as much as we are able to control. And yet, the Bible promises, no, you will suffer, but you have everything to gain by your suffering, in fact. He desires that he wills that we would suffer so that we would actually gain our lives so that because suffering according to God is the means by which he molds us into the shape that he has preordained in our lives. He uses suffering to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. 
Again, to quote John Bunyan, by the way, I just read a, bibliog- a little short bibliography on Bunyan. That's why I have so many uh, illustrations or examples from him. Bunyan says this, It is said that in some countries trees will grow, but they will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. Trees will grow, but they will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. The, of course, the analogy or the, the parallel comparison is this. The winter is what allows the fruit to ultimately come, the new buds to come. Without hardship, fruit cannot be abundant. And yet, as we see in Scripture, especially in the Gospel of John, God desires that we bear fruit. And any branch that does not bear fruit, He cuts off and He throws away. He has saved you so that you might bear fruit for His kingdom and for the glory of His name. And suffering is the means by which God fosters that fruit in and through our lives. You see, suffering and the inevitability of suffering is an important truth that you and I need to come to grips with and really accept because how easy it is, right? How easy it is for us to kind of ask the why questions and maybe even become frustrated and confused when we suffer, right? Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? Lord, what is going on to me? Why me? Or maybe even like, Lord, where are you? I pray and I don't get an answer. I pray and it seems, it seems silent. Well, the first way that Peter encourages the, his fellow sufferers and us today is by helping us, first of all, so by saying, don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. Don't be taken out. Don't be confounded in some uh, uh, distracting sort of way realize that suffering will happen. Secondly, recognize that suffering is a test. Suffering is a test. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Why? To test you. This statement, fiery trial, is, is refers to a refiner's fire that Peter actually makes reference to back in chapter 1. Uh, you remember, remember what he talked about? He says, we have this glorious salvation. We have this incredible gift from God. Yes, you're suffering. Yes, many things have been taken away from you. Yes, you've been stripped of what you've really loved. You don't understand every single, mo- every single thing that's happening to you in that moment. But Peter kind of redirects their attention off their suffering, off their hardships, and says, but look at this incredible gift of life. Look at this incredible gift of salvation that God has so blessed you with. So he says, in this you rejoice, even if you have to suffer right now and be grieved by various trials. Why are we grieved by various trials? That they may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The point is, God ordains suffering in our lives first to test the genuineness of our faith. He allows you and ordains suffering in your life so that you will be tested in your faith. Not because, again, God is trying to make your life miserable, but what he's trying to do is that you would know in your own heart of hearts that you would say, whoa, I am in fact a child of the king. It would confirm to yourself that you are in fact a children, a child of God. Recall what Matthew 
The gospel writer Matthew says in chapter 13, actually Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 13, he gives a parable of the soils, right? In the parable of the soils, the seed represents the word of God and the soils represents the receptivity of people's hearts, different kinds of people. And so the seed is spread all over the place. The word of God is, lands on receptive hearts and the word of God lands on other receptive hearts, but not quite as receptive as other kinds of soils. And one particular soil the word of God lands on is actually called the rocky soil, which represents someone who, who immediately receives the word of God, receives the truth. They're the, they're the person that comes and going, man, I love Jesus. I love him. He's changed my life. This is so incredible. But when persecution and hardships arise, they leave. Sort of with the understanding, I didn't sign up for this. I thought Jesus was going to make my life prosperous, maybe even easy. And they fall away from the faith. William Barclay says it well when he says, A man's devotion to a principle can be measured by his willingness to suffer for it. What you're willing to suffer for reveals what you truly believe. And there's nothing like suffering to expose our theology, right? We can adhere, we can regurgitate, we can say, Yeah, we believe all of these things. But suffering kind of puts the rubber to the road. It's like, but do you really believe? Do you really believe what you profess to believe? So we see that God ordains suffering to test us. But he also ordains suffering to purify us as his disciples. We've talked about this extensively before, but just for the sake of Coming back to a necessary point of reference, God ordains suffering to purify his disciples. John Piper said it well when he says, suffering is a normal and useful and essential element in the Christian life and ministry because it weans us off the world and teaches us to live on God. In other words, suffering is the means by which God purges the ungodliness from our hearts. For without, it, for without it, we become less reliant on God and more reliant on ourselves. C.S. Lewis actually hearkens to this whole point and says this, the human spirit will not even begin to surrender self-will so long as all seems to be well with it. Let me say that again. The human spirit will not even begin to try and surrender self-will so long as all seems to be well with it. In other words, when everything's going great, how reliant are you on God? When everything seems to be going your way, how dependent are you on God to divinely act and intercede in your life? Paul even recognized this in 2 Corinthians 1 when he acknowledges to the Corinthian believers, he says, we were utterly burdened beyond strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe not to the same degree as Paul, the apostle, but have you ever felt like, man, I just feel like everything in me has been stripped away. We received the sentence of death. But then Paul goes on to give reason and understanding as to why he is in this place. 
He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, Paul's conclusion wasn't, God, you don't care. His conclusion wasn't, God, how can you be good? His conclusion isn't, God, why are you making my life miserable? Or why are you not intervening? No, his conclusion was, God has allowed me to experience these hardships so that I would not rely on myself, but on Him who raises the dead. There's nothing like suffering to bring us to the end of ourselves and to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. So how then should we respond? Not if, but when we suffer. That we go through trials of various kinds. Well, Peter says this, rejoice. Rejoice in the blessedness of suffering. Verse 13 and 14, but rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings and, and the Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's kind of the same emphasis that James gives in James chapter 1, right? Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. Count it all joy. Why? When you meet trials of various kinds, who does that? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, Aaron, it's one thing to accept the inevitability of suffering, right? Because maybe you, have, you really have no control over that in the first place. It's one thing to endure suffering. It's one thing to understand that God uses suffering for my good. Okay, I get that. But to rejoice in the midst of my suffering, to maybe even have a smile on my face, not that you have to actually smile, but to actually go, Praise the Lord from a genuine response, even though everything in me seems to be barely holding on by a thin thread. Now, what Peter isn't saying, he's not saying rejoice for your suffering. That would be masochistic. But he is saying rejoice in the midst of your suffering because of the benefit that suffering brings, from the, because of the benefit that suffering produces, as we just mentioned earlier. Now, what in the world would compel you to respond in this way? We have the exhortation, yes, but what is it that in the, in the deepest part of your hearts allows you to respond authentically or genuinely and rejoice even though maybe everything around you is a struggle? Two things. Because there is a depth of relationship with Jesus Christ that is formed through suffering that cannot be experienced in its absence. Let me say that again. The reason why we are compelled to rejoice, even in our suffering, is because there is a depth of relationship with Jesus Christ that is formed through our suffering that cannot be experienced in its absence. John Piper says this, there is more to God to be had in times of suffering than at any other time. I just recently finished 
or rewatch the series Band of Brothers. I don't know how many have seen that. It's a great chick flick. It's a it's a, a nice kind of ten part series, but it's a, a, just a great series. You know, I just there's so many elements and like leadership principles and so many things that are just like that kind of rise to the surface that are good for reflection. But one common observation that anyone can make even after watching it and as those guys experience is this. There's this thing called foxhole buddies, right? There's a bond that is developed because of adversity, not in the absence of adversity. There's a bond that existed between these band of brothers that, could, that was so strong that they would literally die for one another. They'd go through whatever length it took in order to, to be committed to one another. And it would, have not, it would not have happened without there being an enraged battle in front of them where they needed one another in the most difficult of times. You see, adversity brought them together almost in an inseparable way. Only death could separate the bond. And for many, it did. And the same is true in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Suffering fosters a greater communion with Jesus. That's why Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why would anybody in their right mind want that? Oh, Lord Jesus, let me share in your sufferings. Let me, let me suffer as you did. Who would want that? That doesn't sound like the good abundant life. And yet, Paul is saying, this is where I'm gaining my life. You see how in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were unfairly beaten and then finally released, they didn't go out going, woe is me. Did you see what they did to me? You know what? We need to, we need to fight back, actually. We need to rally together and we need to fight back. No, you, that's not how they responded. The apostles were released, and what do they do? They rejoiced that they got to share in the sufferings of Christ because they realized and they experienced firsthand that they could understand and identify and, and foster a union with Jesus that would never have been fostered in its absence. So sharing in the sufferings of Christ allows for a depth of relationship with Jesus that cannot be formed otherwise. But secondly, sharing in Christ's suffering increases our joy. Again, another biblical paradox of sorts. Sharing in Christ's suffering increases our joy. How in the world is that even possible? Here's how. Because it increases our anticipation of his imminent return. This is why Peter says, because you long for the glory that is to be revealed. As we've talked about before, when life is good and when life is predictable, when everything seems to be going your way or as you'd hoped or wished, how much do you long for the return of Christ? When life is going as you had hoped it could ever be, how eager are you for Christ to come back and say, hey, we're going to take that all away? Probably not as much. But I guarantee you, if you are going through 
hell, in a sense, and I put that in quotes because no one knows the extent of hell. We use it pretty fragrant, pretty flippantly, but it's actually, we have no idea what we're talking about. But if you're going through an extremely difficult, grueling time in life with the wind that is constantly in your face, right, how much more do you long for the return of Christ? Going, oh, Jesus, come quickly. Jesus, I'm so glad this is temporary. Jesus, I'm so glad I don't have to go through this forever. In fact, why don't you come back today? That sounds very nice right now. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time in Romans 8 are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed to us. So we see that we can rejoice in the blessedness of suffering because not only does our union with Christ strengthen and we, and we have a depth of relationship with Jesus that would never be experienced without it, not only does it increase our joy, but Peter also causes, tells us we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves in suffering. Suffering gets our attention, right? Suffering gets our attention. When life is going your way, you're usually just kind of about your business. And suffering puts a big break on life and your plans and everything else and says, time out, hold on a second, what's going on? What does Peter say? He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, become of, uh, what, will, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely slayed, what will become of the, ungodly, of the ungodly and the sinner? There's really three questions we need to ask in our suffering. When, when we are going through trials, there's three questions that we really can kind of filter through. First of all, we need to ask, Am I suffering because of my own sin? Am I suffering because of my own wrongdoing? You see, not all suffering is because you are living righteously. Sometimes we reap what we sow. It doesn't mean it's always fair, but am I suffering because of my own choices? And as a result, how could I expect a Holy Spirit relief, right? The second question is, if it's not because of any known sin or wrong poor, or poor choice in my life, then the second question is, in my suffering, how can I glorify God in this suffering? Again, when we look at suffering and we know that it is in accordance to the will of God, that means it's not accidental, your suffering is not coincidental. As a child of God, there's no such thing as coincidence. God does everything on purpose and for a purpose and for your good and for his glory. It doesn't mean that we fully understand every detail and every moment of what's going on, but we understand this, that God has allowed us for reasons that may, I may understand in time, but I can trust that he is good and that he is perfect and that everything he accomplishes is for his glory. So the question is, how can I bring glory to God in this? How can 
when someone watches my life, how can they go, what in the world is going on there? Whereas one person would be taken out and utterly or emotionally destroyed by this, there's a peace that surpasses all understanding in your life. There's a joy that you exude that does not seem normal. A third question that we need to ask is, do I have an eternal perspective on my suffering? You know, Peter actually harkens back to, to Malachi chapter 3, and I won't read those, and Ezekiel chapter 9, to really to support the idea that judgment is inevitable regardless if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Basically, hard things are going to happen to literally everybody. And the picture that we, that we see here is that judgment ultimately begins with the household of God. God has every intention of, again, purging the, the ungodliness from our lives. And so he begins with the household of God. And, and what Peter's really saying is this. It's better to go through the judgment now in this life as children and confirm our commitment to God than to, than to go through a smooth and, and prosperous and really just kind of predictable life thinking that you might be saved when in fact, because you did not suffer, you were under false pretenses. You didn't under, actually, you, you actually thought you were saved when in fact, maybe you weren't. You see, one of the benefits of suffering is that, again, we talked about it, it proves the genuine, genuineness of your faith. It tells you what you really believe. And that's a good thing. Because there we stand before God, as Jesus promised will happen, and he say, I never knew you. But Jesus, we did all these things in your name. We went to church. We served. We prayed the prayer. I have multiple Bibles. I was even part of a life group, sort of. Depart from me, I never knew you. If there's one thing we can observe out of the ministry of Jesus 2,000 years ago, it's this. He pushed back on the religious elite who thought they were the most saved out of anybody. And he says, you are whitewashed tombs. You appear clean and, and religious on the outside, but you're actually dead on the inside. Brothers and sisters, understand that though suffering, yes, difficult, God uses it and wills it so that you would not be reliant upon yourself, but so that you would also prove the genuineness of your faith. So that you would be, as John, the John, the gospel writer, would say in 1 John, that you would know that you are saved. Not just hope, not just have some degree of belief, but you would know with absolute certainty and no doubt that you are, in fact, a child of the king. Fifth and finally, entrust yourself to God in suffering. Entrust yourself to God in your suffering. Therefore, Peter says in verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As I mentioned earlier, Christians do not suffer accidentally or they don't suffer, we don't suffer because of fate. 
They suffer according to God's good and perfect will. Bunyan says the key to suffering rightly is to see all things at the hand of a merciful and good and sovereign God. And what this means for you and for me is this, that the the intensity of your suffering is ordained by God. You don't have to wonder. You can accept and at least understand that the intensity of your suffering is ordained by God. The kind of suffering you have to endure is ordained by God. The duration of your suffering is ordained by God. And if God wills for us to suffer in some way, we must conclude that we are not alone in our suffering and that it is for our good and it's for our purification and it draws us into deeper union with Christ, all the while remembering that God's, that are, that are really the, the very trials that we go through in life, God offers His varied grace, Right? All the various trials and tribulations and struggles that we have to navigate through in life, God offers all kinds of grace to sustain us in those trials. It doesn't mean it's easy. It's not without its effort. But God makes it possible. And we can understand and come back to this point of reference and understanding that God will not fail us that he will sustain us, that he is the one who holds us fast. Worship team, you can come on up here. So let me ask you one final question, church family, as the worship team comes on up. How can we know if we're doing what Peter is calling us to do? How, How do we know if we are effectively entrusting ourselves to God in our suffering. Let me just say this. Because you continue to do what is right even though you still suffer. How do we know we're entrusting ourselves effectively or rightly before God? Because you are continuing to do what is right even while you suffer. You don't doubt God's goodness but you rest in his goodness. You aren't plotting out your comeback against those who have hurt you. You aren't returning insult for insult or evil for evil, but you are blessing in response. You continue to love earnestly. Whatever it may be, you continue to do good. As God is the one who vindicates you, he is your deliverer. He is your righteousness. He is your peace. I can't think of any greater example of one who entrusted himself to his father than Jesus Christ himself. You see, Jesus, though he was uh, falsely accused and, and, and uh, wrongly accused in this kind of kangaroo court of, of sorts, even as he tells Peter, Peter, I could call down legions of angels and I could end all this just like that. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't. Instead, what Jesus does, he entrusted himself to his Father. And when he he stood before his accusers, he kept his mouth quiet. They got frustrated. And he only spoke truth. Are you the Christ? I am who you say I am. He didn't fight back. 
He didn't wish ill on them. In fact, on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He's even being evangelistic on the cross, sandwiched between two criminals. He's not wallowing in a self-pity. He's not saying, Father God, please make this quick. Let's get on with this. He uses that even as an opportunity, even in his excruciating suffering, to say, today you will be with me in paradise. And then we as his children are called to continue to entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father.